welcome to the American Society for Parental and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN, podcast on central venous catheter safety in pediatric patients with intestinal failure. This podcast is based on the article by the same name that was published in the Patient Safety Issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice in December of 2023. We are presenting this podcast to support National Patient Safety Awareness Week, March 10th through the 16th of 2024. In honor of this week, Aspen is developing several podcasts and tools to support clinicians delivering safe nutrition support. My name is Peggy Gunter from Aspen, and today we are honored to have with us Dr. Daniel Wendell, Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Seattle Children's Hospital in Seattle, Washington. She is the Director of the Intestinal Rehabilitation Program and Medical Director of the Intestinal Transplant Program, as well as an Associate Professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. This podcast is brought to you by Aspen and is supported by Fresenius Cabby. Dr. Wendell, welcome. Can you tell us why it is so important for children with intestinal failure to have good central venous catheter access? Well, thank you so much for having me today, Peggy. This is definitely something that's near and dear to my heart. And most of my patient population has intestinal failure. And these are kids that uh, require parenteral nutrition in order to grow and develop. And so they need good central venous access in order to continue to receive that nutrition. And for some of these patients, it's really going to be lifelong access. And so it's really important for us as clinicians to be able to take care of this central access and prevent the complications that can mean that they could lose that access. Okay, great. So throughout this podcast, we're going to walk through the main areas of central venous catheter complications and issues. First, can you describe the central venous catheter mechanical complications, prevention, and treatments for these children? Sure. So when I think of mechanical complications with their central access, I break that down into two main groups. So I think of mechanical complications as occlusions and breaks. So when I think of occlusions causing mechanical complications that can be either within the catheter or external to the catheter. And so really trying to work through and figure out what it is that's occluding the catheter or obstructing the catheter is the main goal. So in terms of internal occlusions that can happen within a central line, we think about clots or a thrombosis within the catheter, or there can be things like precipitates. And so it's important to really work with your team, work with your pharmacists and dietitians to look at the TPN and other things that might be going through the line to see if there's any possibility of a precipitate causing an occlusion. And if you've already worked through that, then you can think about using something to try to clear something like a thrombus. So something like TPA or a tissue plasminogen activator can help to break down a clot that might be within the catheter. So those are internal occlusions, but external occlusions can just be a malpositioning of the line versus something like a fibrin sheath on the outside of the line or an actual intravessel thrombus that could be occluding the line. 
And so when we think about those types of occlusions, the first thing we try to do, you start with the easiest thing. So try to reposition the patient, see if moving them around will help to make that catheter work again. If repositioning them, for example, moving their arm, kind of rolling them to the side, if those sorts of easier fixes don't help with the flow of the catheter, then you can think about the dressing because the dressing could also be kinking the catheter or making it so that there's a, a mechanical occlusion. So thinking about redressing the, the central line. And then if that doesn't help, then sometimes you do need to check a chest x-ray, which could also help you understand if there's some sort of kink or problem with the actual structure of the line. Now, if none of those are really helpful and you've done TPA and you've already evaluated for intraluminal issues, sometimes the line does need to be replaced or evaluated by either a surgeon or interventional radiology to try to figure out exactly what might be occluding that line. And the other thing in the very beginning that might help you try to decide what's going on is whether there's a problem only with drawing back on the line or if there's also a problem with infusing in the line. So those are kind of the steps that I go through and the, both the evaluation and sometimes treatment of mechanical complications that we see in these central lines. Okay, so tell us what you would do for breaks, breaks in the line. Oh, sure. So breaks in the line in intestinal failure, since our mantra is really preservation of central access, we are always trying to repair these types of breaks whenever possible, because every time a blood vessel is entered with a new central line or even a replacement of a central line over a wire, you have the potential to lose that point of access. So we're trying to repair them. And we've had several articles and studies that show that repair of central lines in kids with intestinal failure is a safe thing to do. And so we really try to do that whenever possible. One of the things that can help prevent breakage of a central line is making sure that the dressing is appropriate over that central line. So one of the areas that has the highest risk of breakage is the transition point from the thinner, skinnier part of the central line to the thicker, fatter part of the central line. And this transition point, it's really best if you can get that under the central line dressing so that there isn't the twisting and stress that happens leading to these types of breakage. I think later on in our conversation too, we can talk about some of the different vests and securement kind of devices that may also help prevent some of these breaks. Okay, great. Can you address the serious issue of central line associated bloodstream infection? Tell us your prevention and treatment measures. Yeah, so this is something that is a huge issue with patients with intestinal failure. And one of the reasons is that because our patients have these issues with their gut, there are issues with bacterial translocation and higher rates of bacteremia in our patients than in other patients that have central lines. And because of this, we are always thinking about whether the symptoms a patient has are representative of a CLABSI or a central line associated bloodstream infection. So because of that, 
any patient that has intestinal failure that has a central line, if they have a fever, one of the things that we need to rule out is a central line infection. There was a study out of Pittsburgh that looked at all of their intestinal failure patients that showed up in the emergency room with a fever, and they showed that 70% of their patients that showed up with a fever in a central line had bacteremia. And so because of these very high rates of uh, central line infections with fever, any patient with intestinal failure in a central line that has a fever gets admitted to the hospital on broad spectrum antibiotics after drawing blood cultures so that we can evaluate them and potentially treat them for this life-threatening issue. Really, CLABSI are one of the main causes of both morbidity and mortality in patients with intestinal failure. And so it's very important for us to be proactive about looking for it and for treating it potentially. So in terms of the treatment of central line infections, kids that come in for these rule outs, usually the blood cultures are watched for 48 hours while they're on the broad spectrum antibiotics. And then if they do become positive, you can narrow your spectrum and treat for the course of antibiotics. We've also seen in studies that we have successfully cleared CLABSIs or central line associated bloodstream infections with treatment through that central line with the antibiotics. And so that goes back to this idea of salvaging these central lines. So even when there's an infection, as long as we're able to clear those cultures, we're able to keep that central line in place. So we really try to treat through these infections now. In terms of preventing central line infections, there's a couple of different ways that we think about that. One are these central line care bundles that have been developed. And this is really all of the things that we do to try to take care of the central line. So sterile technique, making sure that people are adequately trained, making sure that we don't have lots of different people accessing the central line, making sure that we're changing the central line dressing on a regular basis. And then on the other hand, using antimicrobial locks to help prevent infection. So there are several different antimicrobial locks that have been used over the years. Antibiotic locks have been used. They're not our favorite, partly because they have a narrower spectrum of activity. They also have the potential to breed resistance. And sometimes the biofilms that are produced and are in our central lines that harbor bacteria and our extracellular matrix and really challenging to get rid of, those antibiotic locks just aren't able to penetrate those. So we try to avoid antibiotic locks but there have been shortages and problems getting a hold of some of the other antimicrobial locks. So some people have still had to use these. We used to use ethanol locks and they were very effective, but those have now been out of reach for a lot of our patients for various different reasons. They are much more expensive now. And so most of our intestinal failure patients don't have access to ethanol locks. So now, there are some groups, including our own at Seattle Children's, that use sodium bicarbonate locks. There are terolidine locks and tetrasodium EDTA or kite locks. Those have been approved in other countries around the world, and we are now trying to do some trials in conjunction with the FDA to get the sodium 
EDTA locks approved here, these are both locks that are nonspecific antimicrobial locks that are able to really attack all different kinds of uh, microbes. And so our goal is to be able to have several different options available for our patients so that when there are shortages, we have other options so that we can continue to protect them. So it's really a combination of how we take care of the lines and these locks that help to prevent infection. Okay, thank you. It's good to hear about those different options. So what about catheter dislodgement? That's always an issue. And you did mention some preventative ways, but I know with children, it's even more challenging than it is with adults. So can you tell us some measures to take to try to prevent that from happening? Yeah. So this is something that we see all the time, especially in our younger patients, because you can imagine, you know, a 18 month old, two year old who's toddling around and their line gets pulled or, you know, a sibling is playing with them and the line gets pulled. So it's something that we do see pretty often in our kids. And so we want to try to secure that line in a couple of different ways. One way is by forming a safety loop or a loop of that tubing of the central line under the central line dressing. This way, when that line does get tugged, it's the safety loop that gets pulled out and not the actual line at the insertion site. So that should be really secured under the central line dressing. Another thing that has been really pretty helpful are central line vests or onesies that we use with our kids. So these are vests that can be placed over the central line. They have different snaps and Velcros and things like that that help to, number one, just keep that line out of sight and out of mind, hopefully, of some of the kids that have issues with scratching at them or pulling at them. It also helps to direct that line kind of out of the field of view for their the kids so that they aren't thinking about these lines as much. So these types of covers can be really helpful in preserving our central lines and preventing them from being tugged. Now, there are several different kinds out there. They can be quite costly. And we do recommend that kids have at least two of them because you can imagine too, especially with younger kids, they're getting dirty all the time. And so making sure that they have one that they can wear and one that can be washed and even maybe having different kinds. So having a onesie that has the the Velcro and the snaps and things that they can wear and having a vest. So some institutions supply these things for kids whenever they get central lines placed. But it can be quite an expensive venture. And so the more options we have of this, the better as well. Here at Seattle Children's, we're actually working on coming up with a group of people that will be making these for our kids. There are lots of of people that make things like blankets and things like that to give kids that are in the hospital. And so we have these volunteers that want to sew things. And so we're actually working with them to make some of these securement devices for our kids as well. Well, that's great. That's terrific. So overall. Besides what we've talked about, are there any other central venous associated safety concerns that you can address today? Yeah, you know, I think there there are lots of things that kind of come up in real life that 
we aren't really taught about as clinicians and people that are taking care of central lines, but that we have kind of learned along the way to help families keep their central lines safe. So some of the things that we talk about are school safety. So these are often kids that their parents have been taking care of them, you know, exclusively in many cases until they have to go to school. And then all of a sudden, kids have to go to school, someone else needs to really take care of them. And so making sure that families are talking with the, the schools, making sure that schools understand that these children have central lines. We try to minimize whenever possible, the access to that line from anybody that's not trained. So um, no one at school should really be touching that central line unless they have to. But making sure that people are aware that it's there. Some families will send kids with supply kits, and those kits can include things like gloves and masks and alcohol wipes, extra dressing, clamp, sterile gauze, other things. But that's really for only in an emergency situation. We really want to minimize who's using these sort of kits at school. So I'd say school is a really big issue for a lot of families. Sports as kids get older is another arena that we get a lot of questions about and if it's okay for kids to play sports and how do we protect their central line. So one of the things that we recommend is covering up the central line, if at all possible, making sure that they're not hooked up to that central line during their practice or while they're playing and trying to avoid contact sports to help protect that line. It's not really safety of the line, but safety of the patient. A lot of these kids need extra hydration if they're going to be participating in some of these sports. And then I'd say swimming is another really big topic that there's a lot of variability across centers in terms of what people tell families that they, they should allow their child to do with a central line. Now, the safest thing to do is to say that children should never swim with a central line in place. There have been cases of especially uh, waterborne illnesses like pseudomonas and things like that that have actually been fatal after a swimming. So this is something that's really important to communicate with families, but we also know that a lot of families are going to choose to let their kids swim even though there are these risks. And so because of that, we talk to our families about ways that we can try to make it as safe as possible. So if they're going to do this, making sure that they're only swimming in something that's like a chlorinated pool, not in a pond or a stream or even a lake or an ocean, things like that. The other things that they can do are double dressing. So put a, a larger dressing over the central line, making sure that um, the dressing is changed as quickly as possible after the swimming to try to keep that site dry. And then some families have the means to buy dry suits. These are very expensive. They're similar to a wetsuit, although with the dry suit, there's a tight neck portion, arm portions, leg portions to keep the water out from under the suit. The problem is that most of our kids are growing out of these pretty quickly, so they're very expensive and uh, not very long-lived. So that's one thing. And then making sure that the central line is not submerged for the first about four to six weeks post-placement to make sure that it is really grown into place and that there's no issues with infection at the insertion site. 
Other issues that we run across, pets are actually something that we have to be careful with. I've actually had some patients whose pets have chewed on their lines. So making sure that you're securing those lines away from pets. And if they do puncture the line, making sure that they come in and that's evaluated because there are some infections that can happen from these sorts of things. And then travel and emergency preparedness are the other two things that we come across sometimes. So we have lots of families with children that have central lines that do a lot of traveling, actually. And so making sure that they are as prepared as possible to travel. So we provide them with an emergency letter. So this is a letter that the family can have that they can take to an emergency room wherever they are. It's important that the families research where the, the local emergency rooms are just in case they need that. And I will say many of our families, when, kid, when they have been traveling, their children have had to go to emergency rooms locally. I think planning, in addition to knowing the emergency rooms, planning for things like the TSA and how are you going to get through security at the, the airport, making sure that they never check their TPN, that TPN is carried on with them. There is a program that the TSA have called the TSA Passenger Support Specialists. These help them help the families to make their way through security as well and try to smooth things out. And in terms of emergency preparedness, this is something that uh, has become more and more clear as different uh, natural disasters happen, the COVID pandemic, things like that, making sure that families have emergency supply kits, have extras of things on hand, and have plans for if, for example, their home nurses can't get to them and families need to do things like dressing changes and, and things like that. So there are lots of day-to-day life things that happen that we're not really trained in as practitioners that do come up and we will need to know how to handle in our patients that have these central lines. That's great. Can you address family and caregiver education and support around these issues? I know you've alluded to some of that, but maybe the what your program is about there. Yeah, this is super important and really it's variable depending on if families have access to home nursing, even if they don't have access to home nursing, or even if they do, I should say, we really need to make sure that families are trained to be able to take care of these central lines because there's always going to be a time when that home nurse calls out and the family is going to need to take care of it. And so because of this and because of the lack of home nursing access in many areas of the country, it's very important for caregivers to be trained and as comfortable as possible with the care of the central line. This training really starts before the patients are discharged from the hospital and involves many reteaches because we're overloading these caregivers with so much information that it needs to be a teach and a reteach and checking in to make sure that they understand and can actually perform the things that we're asking them to do. So a lot of the burden of taking care of patients with intestinal failure and with central lines falls on these caregivers. So the training comes from not only the medical team, but the home care company, the nurses. And at our institution, we require a room in of at least 24 hours, sometimes 48, depending on 
how well the families are doing with the day-to-day taking care of the patients. Those room-ins really consist of the parents doing all of the care with the backup of the nurses. And if the parents are having problems, then we'll reset the clock so that they can try it again. This way, the families can practice what they're doing in a setting where they have that support before they go home, because there's even dexterity sort of things to make sure that your squirming infant is able to be held down so that you can attach the TPN, do the dressing changes, whatever it is that you need to do to take care of them, those sorts of things. You might conceptually be able to do that, but the actual hands-on part can be very difficult. The teaching, while it starts inpatient, really continues in clinic, and it's very important to have close follow-up and reteaching in the clinic visits after they are discharged, because that's really when the practical day-to-day, what they're doing to take care of these central lines goes into practice. And when you can bring them back, ask them how things are going, troubleshoot things, and hopefully prevent some of the issues that can happen with the really complex care of these patients. Well, that's terrific. So thanks to all of you for listening to this podcast. And thanks so much for Dr. Wendell for sharing her thoughts today with our Aspen audience. Our appreciation also goes out to Francine's Cabby for support of this podcast. Have a good day.